Well, as you're opening your Bibles to uh, Philippians 2, if you have a Bible, if you have an app or whatever, uh, all good. Uh, the words will also be on the screen. Uh, as you're doing that, uh, we had an, another successful wedding uh, of a current group. Uh, group. There's a group of people getting married. No, a couple yesterday. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, just, just fun times. This is really fun to see what the Lord's doing, and um, it was fun to celebrate with those guys. Um, Philippians 2, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we're, we're just going to jump right in today. We're continuing this, this series, uh, Finding Joy, looking at the book of Philippians. Um, and, and here we are, come to a, a pretty, pretty powerful text. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Paul writes, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as, as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, it's hard to read the news. It's hard to watch it and not be depressed. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I feel like there's so many things in the news that are just hard to read. Um, and I think uh, not least of which is just all the divisions that we see in our society. I mean, whether they be political, uh, racial, socioeconomic, or between individuals, I feel like over the last few weeks, that last one between individuals has been one that's been a very much front and center. There's a lot of strife out there. There's a lot of disunity. What's at the heart of it? What's at the heart of all these divisions? Uh, I just want to jump straight into the text today and look at what this shows us in terms of uh, 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 there's the, our need for something greater in terms of community and how, he, how Paul shows us we can get there. Um, so to get straight into it, we have now come, as, we, as we've been working through the book of Philippians, we've gone through the first chapter, it's taken us three weeks to get through the first chapter, that's just because there's so much uh, content in here, and Paul has now said, therefore, he starts the text, therefore, he says, I'm now going to draw the concluding matter of where this has all been building. What we see here in the very few verses is, this is God's aim in all of this. Philippian churches, you've been hearing about the joy that we can have in Christ, to kind of recap the last three weeks of study, as we think about the joy we have in Christ, this is God's aim. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, he's appealing to our minds. He's saying, if, if you're convinced by this, if, you've have, if you have a concern for what God has done for you in Jesus, if any tenderness and compassion, he goes on to say, now he's appealing, of course, to the heart, to our, to, to our emotions, and to our affections. He says, then make my joy complete by, and here it is, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. 
God's ultimate desire here, as Paul has been building this text, what is this all about, is God has a desire for us to be unified. He wants us to have unity. He wants a unified, he wants unified human community. And I think this is something we all want, is it not? I mean, we, we all want to live in community where there's no fighting or divisions, but we are striving together for a, in oneness for the sake of love, as he says. But instead, what we see are divisions all around us. Uh, Paul's saying to the church here, you've got to lead out in this. You've got to lead out in, in, as this is where God is leading everything. He wants us to be united. You know, it's interesting to me, if you caught that little phrase here, it's interesting that Paul says, make my joy complete by being uni- uh, unified. Did you see that? And if you've been here with us as we've been going through this series, uh, you know that Paul is a pretty joyful dude. I mean, this whole time, all the way up until this point, he's been saying, I rejoice. I'm filled with joy. I mean, it's like to the brim. Even two weeks ago when he was talking about, I have joy even in the face of death. Paul, as he was writing this letter, was literally chained in a dungeon facing trial and execution. And he says, yet for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm filled with joy. And yet here he says in this text, you want to make my joy complete though? You want to take my joy to the moon and back? Be united. Be of one spirit and one mind. Now I hope, I hope as you hear this, if you, especially if you've been coming for a little bit, that you're thinking, David, is this a little bit repetitive? I feel like Paul talks a little bit about, uh, and by a little bit, I mean a lot of bit about unity. For instance, last week, our guest speaker was here. He was talking about unity. The, last, the previous text leading straight up to this, he says, uh, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one. Paul is deliberately being uh, repetitive here. The Bible is repetitive about unity. I mean, it's hard to find. You can't string but a few pages together and not find in the New Testament, that is the part of uh, the Bible that focuses on Jesus and the early church, and not find it talking about the importance of unity. Uh, Even a couple weeks ago, when we were doing our our small groups, our current groups, if you attend one, you know this, we looked at the passage where, where Jesus, the very last day he had as a free man walking around, the night that he would be betrayed, before he was betrayed and arrested, ultimately crucified, he said a prayer. In that prayer, he, he prayed for all the believers down the ages, anyone who would ever consider themselves a believer down the ages, and he had one prayer in mind for them. You guys remember those of you guys who are in the current groups? He prayed that they might be one. As, Father, you and I are one. And then he says in that same prayer, may they be brought to complete unity. The Bible wants us, is, is, uh, really stresses unity and wanting harmonious community. By the way, even if it's something we don't realize that we want or need. Uh, recently, some of uh, Cindy's and my friends spent time with a couple of families from, from, from Current. And after the night of just hanging out, nothing super special about the night, but just, just hanging out, uh, they came back and they said to Cindy, oh my goodness, this was the best time ever. This was so wonderful. Now, I don't share that to say, hey, pat ourselves on the back, we, you know, awesome community, go current, that kind of thing. I share that to say there is something powerful about a, a community living in oneness of spirit, bearing with each other, being patient with one another, loving each other, even just if in passing, someone see, you know, seeing that or tasting that maybe for the first time and saying, oh my goodness, there's something more to it. 
Another example here is a couple of weeks ago in our men's uh, small group, uh, a number of us were, uh, we got there, we were looking at the, the Bible portion, and then it, was, it became a really powerful night when uh, a couple of the guys there uh, really just kind of opened up with, with a couple of things that they're really uh, wrestling through. And um, it, it was really powerful, num- number one, in terms of how they were just open and, and just saying, guys, would you come alongside me? But it was also really powerful in the sense of there's all the guys just took that as a rallying cry and saying, you know what, we're going to come alongside you in this. Let's put aside the Bible study for a second. Let's put aside the time. Let's just focus on you guys and let's just love you. Let's hear what you guys are going through and we we want you to know we're going to be there for you. Um, There was at one point in the night, I remember uh, one of the guys was kind of reflecting on something out loud when he said, my goodness guys, this is amazing to think about how it is we're all in the same room together with all the different backgrounds that we have. There's about 10 of us, I don't know, 12 of us. He's like, look at the, we come from all walks of life, and yet to think, we are here for no other reason because God brought us together. It's the love of Jesus that brought us together. And then speaking on behalf of the group, there was a little lull after he said that. We're just like, you know what, that's that's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool how, how this can work. God's desire for us is in unity. But here is the reality. Unity The reason why the Bible talks about it so much, the reason why Paul repeats himself, and the Bible repeats itself, and the reason why Paul pleads and uses this word, guys, make this happen, is because it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally. It's not automatic. We've got to work at it. Um, Which is why he he goes on in verses 3 through 4 to say this a little bit more pointedly now. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Let me kind of summarize this thought. He's saying if unity is the goal, then the path to get there is humility. Um, Which is interesting. Because I think if we think about this concept of a unified human community, you know, where we're just, we're striving together, especially for something, you're striving for love, loving others. this This sort of notion in the Bible, I think it, you know, as far as our culture sees it at large, we vibe with that. That makes sense. You know, you can almost say it's like a cultural wind to our back. You know, it's like smooth sailing. Like that, it, it goes along with the current, as we might say. Um, but I think, on the other hand, this notion of humility in our culture at large, the, bi- the biblical notion of humility, it seems to me is just the opposite. It seems to me to be a cultural wind right in our face. Um, and uh, the, the reason I say that is, is, is humility not something that we... It's not something we especially esteem in our culture today. I mean, just a classic example, I'm, I'm now watching football, uh, football season, I love it. But I, I'm never, it, it never surprises me when, it's so funny how a dude will just get up and celebrate like he is king of the world when he just made one yard gain. I mean, it's not even a touchdown. It's like, and, and you know, it's like a little dance, and I love the dances, don't get me wrong. But, the, but I mean, but I love the dances, and the camera lingers. Why is that? Or to make this a little bit more practically, think about it in the workplace. Is it not commonplace to kind of puff your chest out a little bit, to kind of take credit uh, when maybe the credit is not fully uh, uh, in your uh, court? Maybe it was a team effort. Maybe we exaggerate our accomplishments. Use, maybe we use the word I instead of we. Uh, it's in our culture. Everyone's doing it. But do you not see that it's this sort of mindset, it's this sort of, of, of relationship culture that can start to uh, unbind us relationally. 
Um, even if it doesn't become an outward expression on the inside, maybe we're moved to a little bit of resentment or bitterness, or maybe it's kind of a self-preserving like, mechanism where we feel like, well, they're doing it. I've got to one-up them over here. Um, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. But isn't everything in our culture telling us do everything you can to get ahead? That's a strong current sucking us in. Uh, What are we talking about, of course, here is pride. Uh, Pride is antithetical to the thriving relationship God has created for us. And we so desperately need, even if we don't realize it fully ourselves. Uh, Pride is cancerous. It It rots away at some of the relationships that God really intends for us to have. And so Paul says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I've been thinking about weddings recently. I mean, doing a wedding yesterday. I've been thinking about weddings. And I remember back uh, in 2008, there's this article that came out, a New York uh, Times op-ed piece called The Me Marriage. And the whole premise of it is talking about how as a culture we've kind of shifted generationally into this idea of a me marriage or, in other words, thinking of what's in this marriage for me. Like that's kind of our perspective of what what am I going to get out of this? Um, And and it was talking about it from a positive light. Like that's a good thing Um, with with the idea of, uh, you you know, um, we all want uh, mutually loving uh, caring spouses, right? We want people loving us and caring for us. But as I read this article, frankly, I started to get a little, like, depressed. <laughs> because if you think about what that means, is it, it puts an enormous weight, enormous pressure on the other person in the relationship. Does it not? If one person is saying, or if both people are saying, what's in it for me, spouse, then that means on this spouse has to be able to perform or reach whatever standard that that person has for them. And that might be an emotional whim. It might change over time. It might not ever be stated. But there can be, uh, there can be a lack of security there. I like to think of that as a more contractual language. Provided you do your deal, then I'll do my deal. Um, but yesterday, as we were doing uh, the wedding, um, the vows that, we, that are often shared there are not so much contractual. Uh, they're based on not the me marriage. They're based on giving of me marriage. Um, to have and to hold from this day forward for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I mean, that's saying, I'm going to be there. Look, aside from what you're going to bring into this relationship, okay, let's put that aside. What I'm vowing to do for you right here and right now is I'm going to live for you. I'm going to be there for you, no matter what. Um, That's obviously very intimate language, especially seen within the marriage context. But what happens within the marriage, by the way, is it creates an intimate, deep sense of security that the relationship can thrive from. But as we're thinking about what this means for our relationship, first of all, that's a good thing to think about if you're married, you know, in terms of what Paul is actually saying here in terms of humility and living unity. That, that plays out in, in marriage dynamics. But as we, as we think about it in terms of community dynamics and relationships in a, in a web of, of friendships or what have you, Paul is saying, you've got to in the same way, you've got to choose to do this. Actually, in verse 5, he says, it's a mindset. Maybe your translation has attitude. Your attitude has to, you've got to choose to do this. I love how he says here, each of you have to look to the needs of others. 
it's like it's not everybody doing this. It's like everybody has to do this on our own part. We all have to think and say, you know what, I'm going to put myself aside and look to the needs of you. It's, it's got to be a choice. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Christian writer and philosopher, had uh, a num- has a number of things to say on this topic, which I think are helpful. I have two quotes here. One, he says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I thought that was a pretty powerful thought. And then he, here's w- what, what else he says. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's a biggish step, too. At least nothing, whatever, whatever can be done before it, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Is that not your experience of it? That's been my observation. The most humble people I know are the last people to think of themselves as humble. Have you noticed that? They actually will say, I, you know, I wrestle with pride. And you're sitting there like, oh my goodness. And on the other side, it seems to me that the most proud among us tend to be the least able to see that they're proud. And heaven forbid, if anybody talked to them about being proud, it, like, it's not going anywhere. It was like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's our experience of things. But the f- a, f- a foundational thought to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, which we'll get to and we'll unpack even more as we go on here, is one of humility. Humi- the gospel destroys pride because it tells us that we, are, we were so lost that Jesus had to die for us. And the minute when we begin to think, you know what, I think I've got this humility thing figured out. I think it's got this conceited thing figured out. Is the minute we, we don't have it figured out. Um, and I think that's the point. This is, all, this is something we all struggle with. This is something we all, you know, have in us. And now do you see impacts, relationships, and community that God so desperately wants us to have and why he died for us in order for us to have. And so with that banner, with that umbrella, knowing that this is something that we all struggle with, uh, I, I've, I've kind of put together a list of just thoughts to kind of make this a little bit more practical of ways that we can potentially identify how we struggle with pride. Uh, maybe you identify yourself on this list. I do more than a few times. Um, for, uh, you know, s- for starters, let's talk about the workplace. Do we give credit where credit's due? Or do we think about relationships first, even in our workplace? Isn't that interesting? You know, in the Silicon Valley, we're so driven to get ahead and so driven for the bottom line that we can often forget that maybe what's more important is the person sitting next to me or that I'm working for who is working for me. Uh, Number two, do we name or experience drop? Uh, I have a good buddy, and I I won't go into all the details because I don't want to embarrass him here, but for a number of years, I had no idea that he had won uh, just a really famous award. Okay, and I'm talking the type of award that if you turn on the TV, you're like, oh, whoa, that kind of deal. Uh, it took me a couple years to find this out, and um, and then uh, one day I, I was uh, visiting him, and uh, I was I was like, hey, can I see it? He's like, sure, and he takes me to this back room, and it, it turns out it's on a desk, and I'm like, dude, are you using this award as a paperweight? And he's like, yeah, yeah, and he was all, you know, I think I can put this in a, I was just like, what an what a awesome testament. God, what would I be tempted to do in that situation? Get out my phone. The one-yard dance. I would do the one-yard dance. When we perform a service for someone, w- uh, when we give charitably, do we do it for recognition 
or we do or do we do it expecting something in return? You know, it's an interesting thought to think about. If we're doing things in terms of wanting recognition, are we really fully doing it for them? Jesus at one point said, don't let the right, your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give unto others. God knows. God sees it. Uh, do we try to one-up others? I feel like extroverts, you can, we can unite on this one. Oftentimes people will be telling me a story of something special in their life, something amazing in their life, and the extrovert inside of me is like, oh yeah, well, I can't wait until you're done because I can tell my story. And you know, I, hopefully we're not you know, bad intentioned here, but the reality is enjoy, instead we can not focus it on me, but enjoy them and what they're bringing to the table. Is it hard for you to accept blame or does being right trump in the relationship? I had a, a really wise pastor friend uh, share with me what he shares with each of his couples that he works with before they're married. And he said, he said something like this. I'm not going to get it quite right, but the thought is this. He said, being right is not always right for the relationship. Tracking that? I mean, sometimes we can be so concentrated on being right. We've got our way um, that... You know, we, we miss out what's actually more important. And then lastly, but not least, as I read this list, were any of you thinking of somebody else who struggles with any of these? Which is kind of a got you moment. <laughs> Isn't that right, though? Isn't that the way we are often wired? A mindset of humility thinks about serving, not being served, giving rather than taking, about responding, about listening, about fitting into the arrangement of others. At this point, I imagine we're all faced with the reality of this, and that is unity is hard. And unity is hard because we struggle with this. We struggle with pride. We're not all that great at humility. The way the Bible would talk about that is because of our sin. But here's what's amazing about Paul and the Bible so often is he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't end with verse 4 and basically say, all right, guys, go out and do this. Be humble. Figure it out, people. Uh, if he had, boy, we'd be in trouble. I think, okay, this is me kind of musing here, okay? I think we can sort of work on pride, okay? We can sort of work on, working on humility is kind of this ironic thing. Can you work on being humble? I mean, because the minute you start trying to be humble, aren't you kind of, I mean, imagine you're walking down the street and somebody else is like, you know, arrogant or whatever. And you just, or you're watching my football game. Someone does a, you know, one-yard touchdown dance for the heavens. And you, you, you see that, and, you, and you're in, my heart, in your heart, you're like, you know what? I'm going to be humble. That's not me. Does that work? What I love about what Paul is doing here in this text is verses 1 through 4. 1, one, through, one through 4, he's basically he's laying out the rationale for this. Guys, unity is so important, and the path to get there is humility. But you know what? Now, let's open the heavens, literally, and show you the way forward in this. It's not just by trying harder. It's by focusing on Jesus. It's by focusing on the song of Jesus, his humility. If you have your Bibles open, it might not be as, as easily seen or pronounced on your screen. Uh, you may have noticed something, even in your app, I'm sure it does, does this, but you'll see in verses 6 through 11, um, it kind of changes grammar formatting here, okay? So no, most of the Bible, it just kind of goes across to the whole page. But here at verses 6 through the end, through 11, it kind of switches into stanza mode. You notice that? You see that? Uh, that's a pretty important thought to think about. Uh, what's happening is Paul is shifting literally into song. He's shifting into poetry, either composing uh, a hymn 
on the fly or more likely quoting a hymn that existed in the early, early church back then. And think about that. Why would he be going into song? I mean, this happens for me every week. I feel like the band does such a good job of leading us into worship. Um, you know, this happened to me today. You know, if I were to take the songs, the lyrics of, the, of what we sing on a given Sunday and just read them, you know, just like God is good and, or whatever it might be, there's power there. There's power in the words. But there's something entirely different when we sing the words. Is there not? There's something entirely different when we sing it in, your, you know, in our cars, you know, on our, on, our, on our way to work or whatever. But there's something even more powerful about doing it in community, locking shoulders, knowing that we're all praising the God with the same thought in mind. It's filling our entire senses. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to say, look, it's not about just working on humility. It's being overcome by the song of the one who is humble for us. Your mindset should be that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You know what this is saying? This is talking about, theologically speaking, the word incarnation. This is about the Son of God becoming the Son of Man. He is both God, he is both man. And when it says he emptied himself or he made himself nothing, as, as this translation says, it's not saying he put aside being God for a little bit. It's saying that he concealed that part of him. He put it, you know, Isaiah even at one point says, uh, boy, I'm not going to find this quote on the fly. He had, this is Isaiah the prophet writing 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene. He had no beauty that we should desire him. I often mused uh, when I was younger about what I would do. Just bear with me for a second. This is my imagination. I used to think about, like, what would happen if I was transported into the time when Jesus walked around and was doing his thing? Okay? If I was in his presence, what would I do? And I used to think about that, and I used to think, you know what I'd do? Man, I got all these questions. I'd run up to him with my questions. God, why is this the way it is? Why is this? And I'd run up to him with this hurt. Oh, my shoulder hurts. I want to play baseball. Would you help me? Yeah, I'd, I would do that. And then something clicked for me, you know, years into thinking about this and just kind of understanding the Lord for who he is and what he came to do. I realized, you know what? There's no way I'd run up to him in that scenario with questions or ask him to heal me. I wouldn't do anything in the least towards that. What I would do is if that happened, is I would fall flat on my face taking in the dirt as I breathe it because he is the living God, the one who came to die for us. The miracle of Christmas is not that he was born into a manger, which is a pretty cool thought, and we'll probably talk about that next month. The, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, was born, in, born in, in, a, in a barn, in a stable, put into a feeding trough. That's an amazing thought. He wasn't born into a position of honor and authority like in a palace. He was, he was born where everybody could access him, access him. That wasn't the miracle, though, that Jesus was born in the manger. The miracle was that Jesus was born, that he took on life. He took on our flesh. Listen to how one poet writes this. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. And what does Paul tell us he came to do, this ancient hymn? Taking the very nature of a servant. You know that word, just for what it's worth in the original Greek language, is actually the word slave. 
He's echoing what Mark wrote about Jesus elsewhere. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. Verse 8 in Philippians, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, one of my favorite places in the Scripture is one of the Apostle John uh, writing uh, to the church many years after he had spent his time walking around with Jesus in that little three-year period. He was one of the 12 guys who got to spend just tons of time with, with Jesus. And after years of reflecting on it, here's what he had to say. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, 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 guys. As cool as it was to be able to spend time with him, walking around, seeing the miracles, hearing the teachings, guys, we had no clue to the extent of what it meant to be walking around in the presence of the divine. And this, of course, is the point. There's no greater expression of humility. I can't dream up a better expression of humility. This is the ultimate. This is the song of Jesus, his great act of being humble for us. But let me ask you a question. What do we give things away? I mean, why do we give things away? Like, and, and if we give everything away, which is what Jesus did on the cross, giving himself entirely away, what do we give everything? What would we, it's, it's only to receive something to get something much better, wouldn't you say? And for Jesus, giving away everything, what he got was you and me. That's why he did this. That's the, hum the humility. And that, by the way, is how you and I can become more humble. To let what Jesus has done for us melt into our hearts. To sing it, to meditate it, to, to pray through it in thanksgiving. Humility is therefore not something we work on or try harder at, but it's, but it's something that we have to desire all the more in the one who gave himself, the one who became humble for us. Uh, verses 9 through 11 close out saying, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Closing with these thoughts, and we, uh, I think what we see here in this text, and this is not my thought, I, I saw it in some readings, is we see a trajectory here. And that trajectory we see in these verses is the way up is down. Do you see that? Jesus, any number of times, he said things like, hey, he who is last will be first. Uh, the Bible talks about humility and pride this way. Uh, Proverbs 29, 23. Pride brings a, low, a person low, but the lowly in spirit gains honor. And again, Jesus said elsewhere, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what it means. The way to be rich is to give away. The way to rule is to serve. The way to become infinitely happy is not to seek your own happiness. It's to seek the happiness of others. Our life is to reflect the humility of Jesus. And let me ask you, this song of Jesus, does it not resonate with your heart? Is this not how it feels like it is meant to be? Even though, by the way, 
The culture at large might not see it that way. The culture at large might be saying, hey, get ahead, put yourself ahead. Does it not seem like this is the song of our souls, to live for others? And if it is, why is that? God created us for this. He created us to look to the needs of others, to give ourselves for the sake of others. So he calls us to receive it, live from it, and hold it out. Let's pray.